I really desperately wanted to be like owned by someone. I wanted to be like adopted. I wanted to be guardianed. Like I was always connected to my mother, this crazy woman, because no one kind of stepped up. But in the end, my being connected to her was also pretty amazing in terms of other opportunities. Welcome back to the Big Time Adulting Show. Today we have like a real human interest piece, if you will. I have a friend here named Milano Buckley. She has an incredible life story. I really have wanted to bring this podcast back to some more like human interest stories. Like it's great to have experts on and it's great to have doctors and things like that. But I, what I really think I was set out to do when I started this podcast was to get a little bit deeper with just people. And have that be, you know, the way that I shared long form content. So Melano, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Caitlin. It's so awesome to be here. I've been a fan of yours for, I don't know, two, three years now. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is great. So Milano's here actually at my house today and we are sitting right next to each other <laughs> with my microphone in between us, which I've never recorded this way. So I'd love it if you would share what your life has been. Absolutely. I will. You know, I had a a wild and woolly childhood that was divided between trauma and miracle. Uh, I'm 44 now. So I was born in 1979. And I was born in Maine to a mentally ill homeless woman. Probably the first like 25, 30 years of my life. Like, I don't even think I articulated it. You know, I don't think I ever said that in like one sentence. But um, in the last like 10 to 15 years, I've really sort of become one with all of it. Um, And like, even just become proud of it. Her name is Kat. She died when I was 26. My father was never in the picture. And so we, I guess, drove... And she had a car. We lived in her car. And then we landed in New York, in New York City. And um, I think for the first, you know, several months, if not a year or two of my life, we were just staying on couches with people. And and then she got a she got a job at Barnard College. So that got us a Columbia University apartment. And she wasn't diagnosed with bipolar and schizophrenia until I was 12. So from like zero to 12, by the grace of God. And because like a lot of times she just wouldn't pick me up from certain places and homes. And if I had a play date, these kinds of things, I was just taken in by so many different amazing people and lived in a lot of different homes, kind of like an unofficial foster kid. I was, it was like a foster kid, but I just wasn't officially in the system. And one of those families was an African family um, from Ghana who lived around the corner from us. Um, a single mother, Dorcas, um, with her five kids. So the story goes, my mother put up a flyer for babysitting. And I was an infant. I mean, I was a baby in diapers, cloth diapers. And Ase, the second oldest, she um, responded to the babysitting flyer. And Dorcas came home. And, um, and like I say, had this little white baby. <laughs> She's like, what the hell is this? <laughs> Where did you get this little white baby? And, um, she kind of, she, you know, I say said, well, this woman, you know, and this is her name. And she works in, in the Dean of Studies office at Barnard College. She was a, an the d- administrative assistant to the Dean of Studies. 
And, um, and I think Dorcas went and sort of sussed out the situation and determined that this was God's will and that God had meant to give her <laughs> a little white baby. <laughs> Amazing. And so, um, they, you know, I think it was just kind of like an on and off thing. Like when my mother would go into slumps, I would stay there for, you know, I mean, she just wouldn't pick me up, you know? So it was kind of like, oh, I'll pick her up tomorrow or the next day. And then it kind of one day became three days and five days and seven and weeks and so on. And then she would be maybe more capable. And then I would be with her for a little bit of time. But when I was seven, six, maybe six, my mom um, wanted me back. She was like in a manic phase and wanted me to go to this reunion. They were like, not okay with it. They didn't feel that I was safe. And so uh, she came to pick me up and they didn't, you know, respond to the buzzer. And she came up and it was literally like one, one arm was being pulled by my mother and one arm was being pulled by my other mother. They lost grip and the door shut. And then I was with my mother for like the next two years. And then I never, I never saw them again. I never saw them again from when I was six to when they Facebook messaged me when I was 31. Oh my God. I want a 30 around there. I wonder how they were even like able to find you at that point on Facebook, like not knowing your last name. They knew my last name. So my mother kind of gave me this, this is another kind of one of those miracle things. It's like, she gave me this name that has like absolutely nothing to do with my heritage or my blood or, you know, um, it's like almost a stage name. I was very unforgettable in that way. I mean, anyone who came across this kid named Milano Miodini was not really going to soon forget her. So you went back with your mom and spent two more years with her. Those were wild, um, wild and woolly for sure. I was like a little Barnard brat. I mean, I was, I ruled the campus. Uh, Everyone in the cafeteria, they would give me, you know, chicken fingers and I would be playing pool with the college kids. And this was the period that she thought she was writing. I mean, she was very, very much believed she was writing a screenplay that Louis Maul, I don't know if you know who that would I don't. Okay. So Louis Maul was a French director. He was married to Candace Bergen. Oh. And he um, did these kind of controversial films. Um, I think Au Voir Les Enfants was one. And Pretty Baby was another. And that starred Brooke Shields. And so my mother thought um, she, she was she was at Barnard until like the wee hours of the night. I was asleep on the couch and she would be writing this screenplay that Louis Maul was going to direct. Brooke Shields was going to star in. And it was about the French slave trade um, in Senegal in like the 1800s. And this was like this was the lean she picked. And then she found out somehow where Louis Maul lived, Candace Bergen and Louis Maul, what, you know. And where Brooke Shields and her mom lived. And we would like be delivering these materials. And we were stalking, we would be stalking them. Well, she would be stalking them with me in tow. So the script never got pushed through the screen. Oh, no, it was. (laughs) (laughs) In the third grade, that's when a lot changed because I entered a third grade and there was a teacher named Kitty. Kitty Graves was, um, she was like started as a substitute teacher because the teacher you know, like in the first days of school, just bailed. And so they, they, so she comes in as a sub and then she gets, she gets a job. She's amazing. Another miracle. Another miracle. And she can clearly see that, you know, she must've been like 33 or 34 at the time, like a young teacher, not married. And she could see that something was not right. Um, I would be like coming in, you know, late every single day, like, like not just five, 10 minutes late, but like, you know, an hour an hour and a half late every day to school 
and, um, you know, dressed inappropriately like I would be uh, wearing a women a woman's blouse as like a dress or mm. like my hair would be smelling like beer or something, you know, something like that. Did your mom have an alcohol or drug problem? She actually didn't. Um, she was more like the company she kept. Mm. Um, she never, she didn't really drink. Um, and she didn't do drugs. She didn't have money. Yeah. You know, so I think it was like that. And she also just had so much other like stuff going on with highs and lows. Um, not to say that people who are bipolar don't also have substance abuse stuff, but thankfully that was not on the plate on the table. I just wasn't, you know, taken care of. I would come to school without lunch and Kitty would, you know, go down the street and get me a sandwich kind of thing. And she just started paying attention closely. Like my mother would, you know, invite her to random events in in the city. Like, come to this Tibetan bowl ringing concert at St. John the Divine. It's going to be marvelous. And he would like show up. And so then my mother thought, oh, here's like a, a responsible human who is seeming to show interest in like my daughter. And then she kind of like would you know, say, Hey, why don't you guys go? I, these tickets came through to, from, from my office to a ball game. You guys should go together or the circus. And so Kitty and I started to develop, you know, a, a kind of caretaker child relationship. And then when I, when I graduated third grade and I went, I was in fourth grade, then, then I started sleeping over at Kitty's house at her apartment. And then in fifth grade, I was living with her and, and totally. So was this like completely um, a non-legal totally. setup? Like nope. just in fact, no one at the school knew. Wow. No one at the school knew that Kitty was kind of my guardian. I mean, we would like we would when we got to the school block, we would separate and like walk, you know, half a block away, like apart from each other. So no one at the school knew until I was in the sixth grade. Then we told people. And was Kitty in trouble for that? I mean, I think she would have been if it wasn't so clear that it was, you know, the, the, the clear and, and the clearly better option for me yeah. and that I was actually being fed and clothed and taken care of. And it was like, well, how can we argue with that? And did that become ever a legal situation where she was ever? Wow. Never. And then, you know, I, I didn't, um, I lived with Kitty until I was about 15 and then, you know, things just got really tricky, you know, um, and then I started living with my aunt and uncle, my mother's sister and her husband. And then when they decided to move to Paris, um, I went to boarding school. Your aunt and uncle moved to mm -hmm. Paris. Yeah. And Kitty was always sort of remained in the picture um, as like a mother figure. How were you feeling along this way? Were you feeling like nobody wants me? Totally. I mean... It's such a weird thing. It's like people did want me because how amazing that they were taking me in. Yeah. But in terms of like the fact that I I really desperately wanted to be like owned by someone. I wanted to be like adopted. I wanted to be guardianed, you know. Um, yeah. Like I was always connected to my mother, this crazy woman, because no one kind of stepped up. But in the end, my being connected to her was also pretty amazing in terms of other opportunities. I got a full ride to an elite boarding school into Princeton because she was my legal guardian. Um, did you always do well in school? I did and I didn't. Like school wasn't easy for me. I now know that, you know, I have ADHD and clearly did 
the entire time. And so I knew how to find the people who would support me to do better, if that makes any sense. Like when I, I was always like an advocate for myself. I always was like, I don't know this. Who does? <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't know this. Who, who does and who can help me? Who can help me know this? I think that going to boarding school was an amazing thing for me because it made me feel like everyone else. Like we, like everyone in this dorm had one dorm mother. It was your dorm mother. It was my dorm mother, house parent or whatever it was. Um, and everyone had to follow the same rules and everyone had to, if you didn't, you, everyone got the same punishment. So it just felt like I was in the mix and I was, you know, I was just like everyone else. And then, um, I mean, of course, there are always like the haves and the have nots. And, you know, you can always find ways of not feeling, you know. That's definitely like a thing in boarding school. Yeah. I mean, there is, you know, loathing and all of that. What was so, that? So I could get around that. I mean, that's the, that I, I got a Patagonia, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's like not that hard to do. And Kitty, God bless her, was so um, emotionally like connected to me in that way of like just understanding why I would want to fit in in those ways and and doing her best to help me mm-hmm. um like just taking the shame out of it and being like well if that's what you want let's go get you let's go get you one of those so that you can feel like you fit in you know by the way like before boarding school I never had my own bed yeah <laughs> you know when I was living with my aunt and uncle um they had a, t- a lovely two-bedroom apartment but they had they had two kids at that point, actually three kids. Um, and they, uh, I was like rolling like a fold a fold bed, the folded bed into my cousin's room mm. every you know night, and then folding it back up and rolling it into the hallway outside the door um, every morning. And then before that, you know, Kitty lived in a studio apartment, mm. um, and you know, I sh- we shared a bed. Um, so my the first time I had my own bed was when I went to Lawrenceville. Wow. I'm a sophomore at, at the age of 16, which is crazy. So you went on to Princeton. Yeah. Which is amazing. It is. Yeah. Uh, what did you major in? English. Hmm. Um, I'm, a, I'm a writer. Yeah. When I was at Princeton, I did have to get a restraining order from oh. as a fr- when I was a freshman there. So that was pretty traumatic. And, um, and that really like cut our relationship in half and severed our communications. For for good, pretty much, like from that for point good. on. For good. That's this experience of having an extremely mentally ill mother giving you a real like soft spot for people with mental illness. What's your... No, not at all, actually. Yeah. What's the... Yeah. Well, <laughs> like... No, I like... I, tr- I like cross the street. Yeah. I like want no part of it. Yeah. I, so, you know, I think it's just like a matter of like self-preservation yeah. versus, you know, not self-preservation. Um, I mean, the the heartbreak of my life is that I really chose to preserve myself over preserving my relationship with my mother. Seems like there was only one way, really. To me. Yeah. I mean, that's how I, I mean, I replay it all the time and I don't see another way. I want to fast forward some of this to like the point of where you're at in life now. Um, Married, children, you live in a beautiful town. You live a very nice life. You have 
probably what you always dreamed of as a kid, right? Mm -hmm. Something that you'd mentioned to me was that you kind of imagined that when you were able to build this life that looked a certain way on paper for yourself, that you would feel like healed and like, this is okay now. Yeah. But that in reality, there's, that's not a straightforward path. What's it like being an adult survivor of massive childhood trauma and parent? I think it's shocking. Yeah. My whole life, I just knew, I mean, I knew that I was going to be a mom and my certainty about being a mom, I think had everything to do with like, when I'm a mom, like all of this is going to be like, all this, all this crazy debt is going to be canceled. You know? Yeah. And um, and it's just like it's like I'm gonna have a clean slate. I'm gonna make all these wrongs of like my childhood and my mom, I'm gonna make them all like right. It doesn't it doesn't work. And so I think I think the thing is 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 like what was so shocking for me is that I thought once I like like I survived my childhood and all I had to do was like get to this next level of um of finding my guy. And building a beautiful family and home with him. And it was like, that was the promised land. Rainbows and unicorns would await. And what ended up happening is like, instead of, you know, that being the end of this survival story, it was like the beginning of a whole new survival story. Like the most compelling part of my story right now is not about the, the little kid who could but about the mom who couldn't and you don't know that you're the mom who couldn't until you get into the the mom driver's seat and you're like oh my god how i don't know how to drive this car um we're all the mom i know and by the way we are all that mom but that's what's amazing about you and that's what's amazing about you know platforms like yours is that it they're you're like no mm -mm, don't know don't know and and that's okay I'm sure it got felt muddled a lot. Like, is this a normal motherhood experience or is this my childhood trauma? I'm always, I'm always asking that. Like yeah. in therapy, I'm like, okay, so this is what's going on for me. What would be happening in this moment for like Caitlin? Yeah. <laughs> you know, or like Alana. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm constantly asking for fact checking from like my therapist, um, um, which is helpful. But all all these moments in everyday motherhood were like First of all, exposing me for not knowing and sort of constantly like this white knuckling everything like, oh, my God, breastfeeding. Oh, my God. <sighs> like runny poops. Like I'm, I don't know. Whatever, 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 whatever any stage, whatever problems any stage presented was like I was just like white knuckling, like searching through books, like attending workshops, like bringing new therapists onto onto the team. Um, Did it give you any sympathy or your mother, knowing she was battling such horrible mental illness and, and also taking care of a baby. I did. Yeah, for sure. Um, just even like something as tangible as breastfeeding. Yeah. Um, you know, making sure, you know, that you were eating well enough to be able to provide this for your child. And I mean, just the stress with, I mean, and I, I had a supportive partner. Mm -hmm. I had resources. Mm -hmm. um, I, I thought about her a lot yeah. during that time and how enormous that mountain, you know, must have looked to her. Yeah. But yeah, so um, every day I have to remember that, you know, I'm not the child. I mean, my kids do things all the time that trigger things that happen in my childhood. Like they don't listen to me. <laughs> yeah. 
Like, yeah. get on your shoes. Like, um, actually, I'm on a call now, <laughs> you know, whatever. And they don't listen or they um, freak out. I I think when my son, my older son, Buzz, was five or so, I would notice these like physical reactions I was having, like totally outsized, but they were like in my body. It was like I was like, I was in a minefield and I was like tripping over something and I, I tripped and like, I couldn't like control kind of what my body was doing, you know, whether, whether I was like screaming or whether it was like, you know, like shaking or like, it was like, like, yeah, like anger. Yeah. Like rage. I I feel that rage sometimes. And it's just like, why is it coming mad? Yeah. Why? Why? Yeah. And I felt so bad about it because it was like, yeah, it was like, it's like your little kid, my right? little kid. Yeah. And the kids, my husband, like these were the most important relationships and something in me was like happening and I couldn't control it. And um, I, I saw someone and she's like, have you ever considered trauma therapy? <laughs> I didn't feel like I wanted to go. Um, and I didn't also feel like I could feel change in the moment as like I've, I've squeezed everything. Like I'm done. I, I don't know. Like I just didn't, you know, I'm, I didn't see, I couldn't feel, I couldn't touch it, but it works. Do you think that there is really any such thing as full on healing? Like, or are we all just kind of fucked up? Cause I kind of think we are all a little just fucked up and like that that's also okay. I think so. Yeah. I think like with all this stuff, I think, um, it's a practice. Like mm-hmm. he, he, like healing is a practice. Calm is a practice. Um, and I think you just chip away at it, but I don't mm-hmm. ever think that there's like a graduation day. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, a, I'm not getting a diploma. No, it's like, soon. it's, it's a lifelong process, totally. right? Like, and if you always... just kind of like accept that and yeah, you're like, this is not going to be the day I like nail all my trauma, you know, it's just constant acceptance and awareness and forgiveness and, and and that is actually really liberating because if you have all that kind of with yourself and you're able to model it, you know, like the, what Dr. Pecky says, permission to fuck up, um, because then that's an that's an opportunity for you to show your kids how to move through something. Yeah. Like the more I try and protect my kids from pain, like that's going to fuck them up in another way. And I think about that a lot about like, they're not going to have, they don't have the struggle that I had. Mm-hmm. And, but I don't want them to either. Right. <laughs> like, that's like, an extreme struggle. You know, that's an extreme struggle. Yeah. Like we don't know, we don't need But that. it is hard to like refrain from trying to fix everything for your kids or make everything totally. like a pleasant experience. And just like, as they say, sit in your feelings, sit. like sit with these is it discomfort. Sit. I have your body. Totally. <laughs> I have this, um, my thing, like everyone has, there's like always pendulum swings. You have to tell me what yours are. Um, but I would wake up on Christmas morning with like all my presents on me. <laughs> like in the morning, she would just like toss them on your chest. Like, I mean, I don't think she tossed them. I think she laid them very carefully. Oh, like wake up. Like, she like I had to be like a fun way we didn't have to wake up. Yeah. 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 Like, um, with, um, like evergreen branches on me. Oh my yeah. God. Like oh, she yeah. made you the, like I was tree. the Christmas tree. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's okay. it's real poetry. Um, so, you know, I think I have like, I have like a real, uh, a real like whiplash from that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm like really into like doing the tree upright, you know, yeah. and like putting a bunch of presents under the tree and not like on my kids. Yeah. Um, 
And I also, you know, I'm like, I go a little nutty around birthday parties and, you know, and I know, and I know I'm screwing them up. I'm screwing them up. You're going to screw them up somehow, whether it's, um, you know, being bipolar or giving them huge birthday parties. Yeah. I don't know what my pendulum is. I don't know. Uh, what are you like correcting for in your childhood? Um, I was thinking about this like just last night because I was thinking about you coming over today and talking about all that you've been through. And I think because I am like a move forward, I'm okay. This is not as bad as other people. I am a minimizer of what things that have happened in my life. And truly, I had a pretty blessed life growing up as, I mean, the biggest trauma of my childhood was my parents' divorce. Okay. And that was when they were, when I was in the eighth grade, they separated and I was devastated. And I was, and I was surprised because my parents had what seemed like a really nice marriage to me throughout my life. I mean, they showed each other a lot of affection. Um, You know, they were always like big hugs and kisses when my dad would come home from work. We had a lot of fun together as a family, but I guess as I I grew up and when they separated, I learned that they that they were having like a lot of power struggles like behind the curtains, behind the scenes that were never out in the open for my brother or I to see that eventually really deteriorated their relationship. And I think that that's like one of the things now that I live in fear of something that seems fine falling to shit out of nowhere. You know, like the surprise of that. But that happened to me when my son got sick too, because everything like in my life seemed like it was perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I can remember praying like so hard when I was pregnant with Callum, like, please, please, God, just let him be born healthy. You know, that's all I cared about. Just like, let this baby be healthy. And then he was, and he was so healthy and strong and smart and developing like a dream. And then at three years old, he got cancer. So, yeah. So I think those are like my, my traumas of like things that seem when things seem fine, that something bad can still really happen. And that like, that's part of life. Are you able to like be with, the fine, like, are you able to really enjoy the joy or are you always kind of waiting for the other? That's a great question. Yeah. I think in some ways now I'm really starting to be able to enjoy the joy and I've accepted that, you know, my anxiety over what could be over the future will never control the future, you know? So that Mm -hmm. feeling of like angst and worry about what could be wrong has no bearing on what the future actually holds. So fuck it. Let's just enjoy the moment. You Mm -hmm. know, that being said, like not every moment's enjoyable, but when there is joy, I can take it in. I can have it. I can really feel lucky. I also am so curious about when things are not great, Mm -hmm. you know, like you're having a bad day yeah, or like you got cut off in the car, the car line. Yeah. Whatever, like the something silly, silly, like bad things that happen to us and make our day, you know, turn it from like, Mm -hmm. okay, to shitty. But having gone what you've gone through with Callum, 
how did you get to that place where you can celebrate everyday shittiness? (laughs) Or like, or like be like, yeah, we're going to talk about this. It's like, like the not very important shittiness of life when you've been through the very important shittiness of life. Right. I know. Yeah. Like the shit that pisses you off regularly that like you would think if you've been through something big that you would be like, in the grand scheme of things, that's yeah. nothing. I'm unbothered, you know, right. but like, I think that the way that I deal with those like everyday nuisances that we all deal with, first of all, I think that what I've been through with my son felt like I had the liberty to say, to talk about the shit that happens on an everyday basis that is annoying because I was like, you know, she's like, somebody might be like, she's not like that's so ungrateful or she's that she doesn't know what anything like hard is or Mm -hmm. whatever and i'm like well i do know what hard things are i've been through some hard things but like this doesn't mean that everyday shit isn't also hard Mm -hmm. right um and obviously there's a scale like Mm -hmm. a spectrum of difficulty and um but i think like the the we can acknowledge that that shit exists and then also laugh about it. So that's like the best part. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, so yes, these things are happening, but also there's humor in it. Humor is magical. It is. It's healing. It is very, so it's a healing. great defense mechanism. <laughs> the last question, which not to like take the importance away of all the yeah. deep things that we've oh, been God. talking about. Please, but, like, take it away. What is your favorite snack? <laughs> Um, well, okay. When I'm on the go and I can't have lunch, I love the baby bell cheeses mm. with the wax. And I just like, and the, and the pretzel crisps. And I just kind of make little like cheese sandwich, cheese pretzel sandwiches. Yeah. Them, and I like just shove them in my mouth in the car. Great answer. <laughs> I love that snack. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here. For more information on today's episode, visit my show notes. And if you enjoyed it, leave me a review. Now get yourself a snack.